everyone will be given the chance to be dropped into the depth of life. And sometimes it's a life-threatening circumstance, but it doesn't have to be. It's a myth that you have to suffer to be fully alive or to be an artist, or it could just as well have been wonder or beauty or something less dramatic. But for me, it was cancer. Whatever opens us is never as important as what it opens. And I was like Jonah, spit back out of the mouth of the whale, back into life. Uh, who am I? What happened? What does all this mean? Grateful to be here, although I had no idea what here meant. I never thought about, that. really thought about that I would die. I was too terrified of what I'd have to go through. And then when I was blessed to be here, the secondary tumor showed itself. That's when I felt really in despair because I felt, did I waste the miracle? Did I somehow blow this? And then I was really uh, frightened and desperate. I learned you know, several things that that miracle is a process and not an event. And, you know, at every step of the way, crooked is the road to the attendant spirit. Every step of the way, I had to make a different decision to get to today. That is Mark Epo, and I'm Brian Falchuk. The Do-A-Day Podcast. Will you hear from the most inspiring people who have been through hard times, overcome them, and have turned around to help others with what they've learned? I'm your host, Brian Falchuk. I know because I've lived it myself. I've written about it in my book, Do A Day, and that's why I'm bringing you this show. Remember, today's a new day. Go out and do it. Hey, day doers. Welcome to another episode of the Do A Day podcast. I feel like I need to speak softly and cleanly to do this intro because of who the guest is. I have possibly one of the most beautiful, eloquent, writers, thinkers, poets alive today. His name is Mark Nepo. For anyone who's a fan of Super Soul Sunday with Oprah, you probably recognize him. Um, if you're a reader in the same space of books that Oprah talks about or a lot of uh, kind of self-enlightenment and self-exploration people write in, you may well know Mark as well. He's a, a household name in my house. We touch on that. Um, He's a poet, he's an author, he is a man who has survived uh, cancer twice, um, and, and we get into that, and how that journey awoke something in him, a kind of understanding and exploration that had already been there to an extent, and the seeds were there, but it came alive from there. He, he speaks and writes differently. I've read, I've read some of his books, and they're just they're different. And I touch on this. It's like, they're this really beautiful journey of thought. Uh, they're not educational. Yes, they're educational, but that's not how they come off. Like you come away enlightened and curious rather than like, oh, this specific thing he said means exactly this. And that's what you do with it. It's like this specific thing he said stuck with me and grew something in me and got me to think about things. It's, it's really interesting coming away from his reading, how you feel and how you grow and experience. And I feel like we got into that in the show. Um, he's incredible. He's a very unique human being. And we as a society, as a people, are very lucky to have him sharing his mindset the way that he does. Um, I, <laughs> I really can't do more to say who Mark is because it's so unique and it's so special. And the best way to take that in is through his own words. So let's jump into the episode with Mark Nepo. Mark Nepo, thank you so much for joining me. This is quite an honor for, for me. And as I mentioned to you before we recorded, uh, you have a special place in my family's heart that we'll speak to in a moment. But um, just thank you. It means the world that you're here. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm very happy to be with you. Yeah, as I, as I mentioned to you uh, before we were recording, my wife's journey, which for listeners of the show, they'll be familiar with that. Um, you were you were one of those key points for her along the earlier days where she was just coming out of really the the worst of her illness and finding herself and her path to heal. Um, and your work was so inspiring and beautiful. And then you happened to come to our hometown to speak, and so she's like, "I got to go see Mark Nepo." And she brought her book, and you signed it. So when she found out I was doing this, um, yeah, she's sort of been checking in with me weekly to see if I've talked to you yet. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm so I'm so glad and humbled 
that that the work can you know be of use, and uh, that's what it's all about. So yeah. I'm very touched and grateful. Yeah, excellent. Can you just give us a little high level view of of who you are and what you do today, and then I'll we'll we'll step back in time to that whole journey that led to what you've created now. Well, you know, I'm I'm 68, and I'm a lifelong student and teacher. And the student part of me is what uh, leads to all the books. That's where I learn. It, each book is an inquiry. You know, I don't, what I share are examples, not instructions. And I mm-hmm. don't, um, you know, I don't have any answers. I'm, I'm just breaking trail. And some trails are, of course, trails everyone has ever been on, who's ever lived. And uh, just sharing along the way. And and that's very dovetailed with, you know, my teaching which is, you know, mostly I teach retreats and you know, I'll speak at conferences and larger things like that. And, but mostly I give retreats and workshops where, you know, my job is to create a hard space where to help introduce people to their own gifts and their own wisdom. Is, is this style of not giving the answers, not giving the guidance or, or the, the specific, you know, take these steps or this is how you do it. Was that intentional or did you ever, did you ever have a choice to make or was it sort of always clear to you, you know, that I I need to sound these things out and have people sort of come along for the mental journey with me? Well, I, 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 and I would say the the heart journey and the soul journey and um, the human journey. um, No, it's always been pretty um, inherent to my, at least my experience that you know, certainly we can learn from each other. There's no question. It's been forever. That's where the, the tradition of wisdoms come in. But true teachers in all traditions uh, and true teaching traditions are those that point you to your own experience and your own wisdom, mm-hmm. not to not to be enclosed or encased by it. Then we then we turn stubborn Then we turn myopic. But, you know, that that the real value of wisdom is to help support us in our incarnation. We don't get any shortcuts. So yeah. there can't, no one can give any how-tos. I, I've always, you know, struggled with publishers around this, and that, um, you know, I don't write how-to books. You know, we can point up passages through metaphor and story uh, and poems that we all have to go through, and then we say, we put it between us and say. That, you know, this is as far as I've got. How? What's your experience and what's mine? And encouraging people, because I really feel that the journey of being human is, is about our constant steerage. And, in, and, and that's why we have to love the struggle, because struggle never goes away. We may struggle with difficult things. We may struggle to be real, and then we struggle to stay real. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that those are the good days. <laughs> yeah. No, that's I, that's brilliant. Um, I do wonder with your your work as a poet, if it really could be any other way, because it's <laughs> so much more expressive and inspiring than just here's what you do, follow these steps, fill out the worksheet, and you're a better person, and then you're done. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no, there's no. My experience is there's no arrival. You know, uh, one of my books is called The Endless Practice, and um, and that's just it. It is an endless practice that we we keep steering. You know, when I was a little uh, a boy, my father, who's now gone, he was a master woodworker and he loved the sea, and he built when I was a child. Um, he built a thirty foot catch sailboat out of wood before fiberglass. And, um, and I spent, my brother and I spent a lot of our youth on that boat. Um, and so I learned at a very early age because when I was eight or nine, he would trust me with steering the boat in a fog. He must've sensed that I had a lot of attention. You know, when I would give my attention, I'd be focused, but I learned at an early age, if you've ever done that with a, a directional compass, um, even when you're on course, it, the needle never stands still. Yeah, it's always going a little left, a little right, a little left. So, so you know, years later, that's a great metaphor for the practice of being a spirit in a body and time on Earth. We can be on track, but 
we're never done. You know, yeah. we're constantly having, oh, today, a little to the left, a little to the right. Oops, I got to steer back. And I think one of the, the deepest uh, things we can share is um, to do that without judgment. Not about beating ourselves out. It's about course correcting. We will fall down, you know, down because we're human. But uh, medieval monks, when asked how they practice their faith, said by falling down and getting up which I love. <laughs> that's brilliant. Yeah, that's really nice. Um yeah, I the the that compass needle it it's analogous to me to when I talk to people about their struggles and their journeys and they're like, "Oh, but you know, today's so hard and I thought I was doing better." I said, "Well, who said that the path to better is a straight line? It's it wiggles and it wobbles and it maybe on average it's better, but you certainly have ups and downs. That's part of life and it's what we take from that and how we get back up." Yeah, and I, you know, that brings two things to heart and mind. I mean, one is that when I was going through my cancer journey, I learned very quickly after one of my surgeries that um, uh, it, healing is always two steps forward, one step back. Doesn't matter whether it's physical healing, emotional healing. You know, the journey is, we're making progress, but you know, today it seems easy, and tomorrow we'll go. Wait a minute, you know. And the other is what you just said, it really echoes uh, about straight versus wiggle, really echoes a, a aphorism of William Blake, the great mystic poet, you know, which where he said, straight is the road to improvement, but crooked is the road to genius. Wow. And, and that, that's even more powerful when we look at the word genius. You know, I'm interested in the origins of words, not because I'm like a word geek, but because... I find that words like nature, pieces of nature, they erode over time. And when I, whenever I go back to trace or try to find an earlier meaning, they're usually more whole, and therefore they're usually more helpful. So here's one, genius, which we know as this, you know, Mozart is a genius, and Itzhak Perlman is a genius, and Stephen Hawking, you know, these people who have this exceptional particular ability, you know, and... Um, but the word genius originally means attendant spirit. Everyone, oh. everyone has a genius. Yeah. Whether we call, there's a thousand names for that attendant spirit. Soul, Atman, Dharma, Holy Ghost, Yahweh, the ineffable, you know, that you go on and on. But everybody has, this is where the word genie comes from. Oh. And so at the heart of Aladdin's lamp, the, the myth the story is that if you hold your own life, your light, then your your attendant spirit will appear to help you. Wow. And it may not grant all your wishes like yeah, in the yeah. story, but it will be there to help guide you. And so this is where genie and so yeah, when when we really follow our heart, which doesn't necessarily be on the straight road, it will lead us to our attendant spirit which will then be there to help us. That That's amazing. I had no idea about the source <laughs> of the word genius and genie. And, and now I'm just thinking about like, we are the lamp. Um, all right, before mm -hmm. we go too much down that, that path, you mentioned your cancer journey. Mm. Can you take us through that process? And um, I've heard the story probably less from you than from my wife, who's blown away yeah. by it. But um, I want to hear it from you. And obviously, I heard it when you told it on Oprah. But I'd love to hear oh. your 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 recounting and and what it inspired for you. Well, sure. And let me start that with a larger context that I've come to understand that everyone, everyone will be given the chance to be dropped into the depth of life. And sometimes it's a life-threatening circumstance, but it doesn't have to be. It's a myth that you have to suffer uh, only to be fully alive or to be an artist or, you know, um, it could just as well have been wonder or beauty or something less dramatic. Um, but for me, it was cancer. Cancer was the catalyst. There's nothing, uh, you know, heroic or, or specific, special about cancer. It's a disease. But not, whatever opens us is never as important as what it opens. And that's the thing. So I talk about cancer because that's what it was for me. And so I'm 68, and in my 30s, um, I was teaching at Albany University in Albany, New York, and I was trying very hard to try to 
learn how to be a good poet, maybe, maybe write one or two great poems if I was lucky. And, um, and I came down with a rare form of lymphoma and, you know, and suddenly went, you know, it was growing in my skull bone on the right side of my head and it was protruding dramatically in and out. It was the size of a grapefruit. It was pressing on my brain. But the odd thing was that I didn't have any symptoms. I should have had tremendous headaches, been tremendously impaired, both with vision and mind and and sight and uh, you know speech. But I wasn't. I just had this huge thing growing on my head. Was and there a medical explanation for why you weren't? No. Okay. No. No. And uh, you know, my former wife at the time was also. We were going through cancer at the same time. She had uh, cervical cancer. And uh, so I was preoccupied with her. And since it didn't hurt, I wasn't paying attention to it till, you know, some dear friend said, uh, you know, you really should see somebody because it looks like you're growing a second head. <laughs> and uh, so I went and I, and I was like, I had no, I didn't even think it was cancer. So I went to a sports doctor. I thought I must have bumped my head or something. And he quickly sent me to a neurologist. And, uh, and so when I went, you know, the first thing, which I'm sure people experience as just like I did, I went through the door of the doctor's door and life as I knew it, there was no door to go back out through life as I known it was over. There was a whole new life. Yeah. There was no normal to return to. And so suddenly I was on this journey. And so um, you know, within a few months, I, I would, well, a few weeks, really, uh, three months, you know, within a month, three to four weeks, I was lined up for uh, craniotomy, uh, which was sur surgery on the skull and spinal chemotherapy and all kinds of things. And, um, you know, I knew that this tumor was fluctuating and no one but my neuro neurosurgeon would believe me. Um, what do you so, mean? What do you mean by fluctuating? I knew it was changing. Mm. I could feel it. I could sense it. And, you know, all the doctors, medical community were just saying that's wishful thinking. That's not going to happen. But I could tell. And so I had a before uh, agreeing to further uh, surgery and and things, I insisted on one more MRI. This is 1987. And um was October 15th and I went in and had one more MRI and the tumor was gone and had vanished. Um, it left a very thin, that part of my skull bone is very thin, uh, thinner than the rest of my skull. And I knew that morning uh, before I had the MRI that it was gone. I woke up like five in the morning and the only way I can describe it is that uh, when having the tumor felt like if you were to hit a tuning fork and it vibrates. Well, when I woke up that morning, the vibration was gone. It was still. Mm. And I knew, it, and I knew it was gone. And I went in and had the MRI. And by that time I was getting copies immediately. I went out in the waiting room, held it up to the fluorescent light and it was gone. And, um, and I was like, Jonah spit back, out of the mouth of the whale, back into life. Uh, who am I? What happened? What do I do now? Yeah. What does all this mean? Um, grateful to be here, although I had no idea what here meant. Yeah. And when we can talk a little more about, you know, dealing with fear and pain and all of that, but what happened next was within a year, there was a cyst that this was so dramatic on my head that, in my back, my left back, on the eighth rib, on my left, the back rib, um, there was a sister tumor growing there. Oh. And so within eight to 10 months, I was back in, with the doctors. Um, and that's when I was really in desperation because th with the first bout with my skull, I was, I'd never been through anything. So I was really terrified of what I have to go through. I, I never... Yeah. I never thought about that. Really thought about that I would die. I was too terrified of what I'd have to go through. Mm. 
And then when I was blessed to be here, and then it, you know, the secondary tumor showed itself. So it came, quote, came back, although it was always there. Um, that's when I felt really in despair because I felt, did I waste the miracle? Did I somehow blow this? Did mm. I, what? And then I was really uh, frightened and desperate, like, I don't know what to do. All the things that I enlisted before um, weren't working. And so then, you know, I realized that uh, the thoracic surgeon was part of the miracle. And so at every step of the way, and I had that rib and the adjacent muscles removed from my back, and within two weeks after that surgery, because it was a rare form of lymphoma, um, though I had no seeming trace of it in me, they couldn't be sure, so I was a candidate for very strong chemo. Mm. And so I did four months of chemo, which almost killed me. Yeah until I had to stop that. And I've been well ever since. So I learned, you know, several things that that miracle is a process and not an event. And, you know, at every step of the way, crooked is the road to the attendant spirit. Every step of the way, I had to make a different decision to get to today, which required my total authenticity, my total humility, my total being open to what did it mean today to get to tomorrow. And, and I also, you know, learned, I mean, the other two things that really changed everything for me was that, you know, I was raised Jewish, I have a great tie to the Jewish heritage. Um, but out of this, I became a student of all paths. Mm. Because I was blessed to have people from all faiths, all walks of life, in the largest way possible, including scientists and naturalists and atheists, offer me some kind of help. And so once I was blessed to be here, um, I was not and am still not wise enough to know what worked and what didn't. Mm. And so I was asked to believe in everything. And all my books, all my work, all my teaching has always been about um, affirming the common center of all paths while lifting up the unique gifts of each and looking for how to how, encouraging people to find where do these things live in you mm. and the other big thing was that you know i was always a heart-centered person um but i before my cancer journey i went about it through my mind you know and it didn't really work very well <laughs> And what do, what do you mean by that? Was it sort of rationalizing and thought well, or what, what's well, the difference? I was, just, I was just more up in my head. You know, I, I, I was more conceptual about the heart than in the heart. And so without any wisdom on my part, this experience turned me inside out and upside down. And I woke up and everything had settled down into my heart. And ever mm. since then, my mind has served my heart and not the other way around. And so one of the things about whatever I write is I don't write it or it's not part of a book unless it comes from my heart. I haven't read everything you've written, but I've read quite a bit. And there is there's something very different about your writing than what I find in most of the other sort of inspirational development kind of things that I read there's it's more poetic and and there's a beauty to it but there's something that almost can't be described it just you read it and it feels like there's something very different about this work and what you've just been talking about is sort of I feel like the the conception of it is coming from a different place yeah well thank you thank you so I I, I feel like um and that's how it leads me so you know, so we can go in a lot of different directions from there, but that's kind of, you know, the overview, if you will, of of that unbelievable journey, you know. So was it sort of everything coming down into your heart and then yeah. leading from there? Is is that what defined like, okay, I need to be sharing these thoughts. I need to be putting this out because I know you're already writing. Well, but it was, I was already writing. Was different. I was, yeah, it was different because... Um, 
you know, I was writing, like I said, I was hoping, hoping maybe I could write one or two great poems. Well, then all of a sudden, you know, I was trying to get to tomorrow and forget writing great poems. Yeah. I was trying to discover true poems that would help me live. Mm. And now that I'm in my 60s, I want to be the poem. <laughs> and the writing is well just said. a trail. Yeah. And and so, uh, you know, that's that's the, I think, the biggest thing is uh, that I, I've I've always written as a way to learn and be as honest as I can be, um, and then sharing it. You know, I was always trying. Uh, you know, I was a very driven artist uh, before my cancer journey, and that was one of the surprising. Uh, gifts and disorienting is that once I woke up on the other side, I had lost my drive. I was no longer driven, and I, and I and it was disorienting. I felt like I lost my gift. I'm blessed. I'm so grateful. I'm here, but where'd my gift go? Yeah. And it took me several months to realize that I was now drawn to things, not driven, which was had just as much energy, if not more. But it gave me more freedom and more joy. And so the image that has come closest to what that was like, it's like a river, that, that a deep river that's, you know, really swiftly moving against its banks and along its bottom. And it makes a lot of noise when it, as that river roars by. But when it reaches the sea, the mouth of the river, that current goes deeper and it hasn't reduced its flow it's simply gone quieter because it's gone deeper to join more water. Mm. And that's what kind of happened to my creative gift. And so I was actually in a deeper place and, and a much um, more creative, creative place. So, you know, my sharing with it, uh, uh, you know, has always been the want to, uh, I feel like I'm an inner explorer, you know, yeah. And and uh, I just want to, you know, share uh, what I can. Uh, yeah. You know, breaking trails, sharing yeah. common trails. Yeah. The driven versus drawn. It's really interesting for me because I've always thought of myself as driven. And as soon as you said drawn to, um, there's almost like a freedom to discover and explore. Absolutely. When you're, you're driven. I don't want to speak ill of it because like, you know, it's, it's a big part of how I think I've, I've uh, gotten the things that I'm really thankful for in life, but there's almost uh not at all costs, but a, a push that you might miss what's around you. Well, I think, I think that, you know, what I, I feel the difference is what, you know, it is just what you're saying is pushing versus following. Mm. You know, I don't mean following others. I mean, following your intuition, what's yeah. heartfelt vision, what's there and and being in conversation with life rather than pushing and trying to manipulate life, mm -hmm. manipulate materials to create something. It's more to me about being in relationship with the unknown, being in a conversation. And then, you know, I, I I'm blessed to be prolific because. I write about what I need to know, not what I know. Mm. You know, if I had written about only what I know, I would have written very little. Yeah. Well, you <laughs> explore so much through that process and understand so much more through through writing it out. And well, it's just life giving, yeah. you yeah. know. And I think the other thing is that uh, to share about this is that, um, you know, as we grow, and whatever we, whenever. I think those who suffer, and we all suffer, have a wisdom the rest of us need. And what we experience is in acute relief what everyone experiences in more normal, quote, times. Mm. So the exaggeration, the acuteness, we can see the lessons more clearly, although it's scary and painful. And then they're directly translatable to the more quiet, normal, quote, times. And so one of the things that we all go through, which I went through because of this, is, you know, when, you know, being alive, we are blessed to be, to keep growing and be more than one self throughout the years. 
And so, you know, a butterfly emerges from a cocoon once. Well, we get to do that multiple times. And when we emerge from our cocoon, which is a former self, um, it doesn't mean the cocoon was false. It means the cocoon did its job. So we don't have to denigrate or to, to justify where we are. We don't have to cease, play seesaw with where we were. Yeah. Everything. And so, you know, another image that's helpful here is like if you have a plant, a potted plant, we all know that if you care for it, it grows. And then you need to repot it. Because if you don't, its roots will get bound and it'll die. And so, you know, early on, I think the identity of poet was an early pot for me. And then after my cancer journey, um, as my as I grew, poetry is a way of being and seeing and expressing. I mean, I am a poet, but it real. I had to repot myself into a greater pot, which was the nameless spirit that I am which learns and gathers and expresses through the poetry um, and the poetry of vision and seeing. And, um, but, you know, I, I'm, I am a poet, but I'm more than a poet, just as I'm, you know, I'm not just a cancer survivor. Yeah. You know? Yeah. We do kind of latch on to these labels. And I, I find with folks um, on the coaching side of what I do, that are at some point in their life where they've been in a career for say 20 years or they're getting towards retirement and they're yeah. and they won't retire because it's like all they've ever known is I am a insert profession. Yeah. Uh, so, so there's a couple of things about that that I think are very profound and archetypal. That is everyone has to go through them though. We may not go through them the same way. And, and one, one is that, you know, if you take a glass of water, well, in this world, the surface world, if we drop and break the glass, the water spills and, you know, but our spirit is the water and the glass is our identity. And so, of course, we're attached to the glass and the shape of the glass and the outline of the glass, but that's not who we are. And magically in the inner world, as we grow, as that identity is cracked or shed or evolves, we fear like, oh, my God, you know, I'm losing who I am. But magically, that's the water of spirit hovers and waits for the next, the next identity, the next glass to pour it into. We don't lose who we are. It just for the moment is shedding one shape or container and getting ready for the next. And so, um, oh, and I was going to say something else about what did we just, you just, you just had said about, oh yeah, okay, I got it. So this is, I'm glad I remembered, this is important. <laughs> so um, Helen Luke, have you ever heard of Helen Luke? No. Now Helen Luke was a Jungian analyst. She actually was, uh, she actually was a patient of Carl Jung's and became one of the first generation of Jungian analysts in America. And she was a mentor for me in the last two years of her life. She lived to be 90 uh, when I met her at 88. She has a book called uh, Old Age, Journey to Simplicity. And in there she talks about, she unpacks some traditional myths that are just profound. And one of them is the tale, and this pertains exactly to the retirement issue, the identity issue, the periods of life. Yeah. So she talks about uh, the end of the journey for Odysseus. After the Iliad, the 10-year war, the Trojan War, after the Odyssey, the 10-year journey home, and he was a master at sea. I mean, he was, you know, considered the greatest person at sea his entire life. And um, so uh, at the end of the story, uh, there's this little-known part where he's retired. He's basically at home with Penelope and Ithaca in ancient Greece, and he's retired, and, and he's restless. And he, one day he gets up and he says, nah, I've had it. I'm going to go back to sea. So he leaves a note for Penelope. He gathers his things and he takes an oar, his oar, and he starts heading back to the harbor. And just then, the blind soothsayer, Tiresias, as a spirit, hovers in front of him and says, no, you're not going to go back to sea because you're going for the wrong reasons. You're going to turn around and walk inland so far that you not only meet someone who doesn't know what the sea is, they don't even know what an oar is. And when you get that far, 
you're going to plant the ore and start a garden. Wow. Yeah, it's powerful. And and what that tell what that story says to us is to me is you know he wanted to go back where he was respected and the stature and the position and we're not asked to let go of what we learn but we we all go through more than once in life exploration mastery and abandonment not the kind of abandonment we associate with family or relationship but abandoning all the outer forms the stature the master, you know, being treated like a master so you can get back to being a beginner and take all you know and apply it to something new. Why? Because it's the beginner's position that brings us alive again. Oh. And, and this is what we all have to face, every, not just at retirement, though yeah. it comes up mostly at retirement. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting to me how, you know, like, like Odysseus going back to the water, people who have identified themselves with that label, with that role, it's really scary to face what that next glass might look like for their, their water to go into. And uh, I, I find the excuses of why they can't retire, why they shouldn't, why this, why that, and then talk about what it would be like, oh, I can't sit around and do nothing. Who said you'd sit around and do nothing? It's because their conception of themselves outside of that original framing is nothingness. Well, and, and, and I think this is, you know, in my last book, which was uh, about community across history, more together than alone, I, you know, one of the things I discovered, which, you know, we in our modern world, we are so identified by what we do that we lose intimate contact with who we are and what we are. Yeah, very and true. In, in North America, around 1000 AD, the Native American culture across the heart of North America, um, tribe members did not define themselves by what they did. In fact, their roles shifted as the community needs did. So one season you might make teepees, and then the next season someone needs to plant corn. You go, oh, I'll plant corn. And then someone else, then you've got to be a warrior. you know. Um, and so everybody was constantly taking on different roles depending on what the relationships of the tribe needed. And therefore, who they were was not tied to what they did as much. It was more tied to their basic relationships to nature and the world and to each other. So they were not, you know, if you ask them, who, who are you? They wouldn't say, well, I'm a teepee builder or right. I'm, I, I raise corn or right. I'm a farmer. That's not how they would address that. Whereas we are much more inclined to say, yeah, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm an accountant. You know, I'm a studio engineer, whatever. Yeah, it, it it's really interesting. I'm so curious in other societies right now. I like I've been around Europeans quite a bit. There's a similarity there, but maybe not every country. I don't know. Um, Asia, you know, d different parts of the world. If we've all sort of moved to suffering from that same framing, or if there are pockets where we still don't view ourselves by our profession. Well. You know, to just go here for briefly, uh, and then we can go back to, you know, uh, whatever you'd like to explore. But I think in, in that community book, I also discovered, and this explains a lot, you know, um, in the 1800s, Karl Marx, who uh, we all know Marx led to communism and Marxism, but he gets a bad rap uh, because he had a lot of amazing insights, though it all didn't work out, you know. And um, and he wasn't the one to turn Marxism into communism. There were a whole lot of other people who were dictators and just horrible people that you know from Lenin and Stalin and whatnot. But but so all of that to kind of open us to say, let's look at what he did see, which he, it was an amazing perception of 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 society and global progress and the cost. So in 1844, as the tech, as the industrial revolution was in full swing. He foresaw, he looked and he said, you know, he said, progress is great, but I can already see that the cost of progress is that our relational way of life is going to be broken down. And what that's going to do is it's going to separate us from parts of our basic human nature. And so he was saying, if you were separate, if people 
got separated enough from their basic human nature, it would create an alien nation. So he was the first one who came up with the term alienation. Wow. And he even foresaw early therapists as alienists, people whose job was to repair. He didn't say get rid of progress. He said, let's have people who will help repair people to their wholeness and their inner nature because this way of life, of progress, is separating them from it. And so that was his, his real kind of uh, uh, argument with capitalism was that capitalism was the driver of mechanical life, and that was separating us from our human nature. So, so that was the thing, and, and so it's very powerful that we, we suffer from this today. Yeah, probably more so. I mean, social media so. to me is like the the ultimate drawer away from community, from you know, uh, real identity, real connection. Yeah, and so you know, we we are charged just just as you know we do because we've lost. We don't have to do, and thankfully, you know, like we don't have to. You know, we've got heat, we got electricity. Yep. We don't have to cut cut down ten trees for the winter and lug it around. So what do we have to do? We have gym memberships, and we have all kinds of aerobics things to compensate for our lack of physical activity. Great, I'd rather do that than have to get wood all winter. But what this raises is there's a whole need for a whole range of spiritual aerobics, things we need need to compensate to stay whole and healthy internally for the cost of progress that is breaking us from our basic human nature. Mm. And so while, you know, those of us when we are threatened by life-threatening experiences or things that, like we said, will throw us into the depth of life, we get thrown into that right away. But all of us, you know, there's two basic ways that human beings grow willfully shedding and that's where we need spiritual aerobics where we need to grow we need to figure out these things or we'll be broken open and if you don't willfully shed don't worry you'll be broken open yeah it'll come so i want to i want to try to pull this back for the people who yeah sure maybe sure. are because what i'm not going to ask you for is what are the steps they need to take but what I do want to get into is what are the kinds of things that exploring the, the, the issues, the, the thoughts to explore when we're in the throes of this, the thing, the thing I try to push people towards is introspection. And, you know, I think that's, that's aligned with your work is what is it we should be contemplating and thinking about and challenging ourselves on mentally, spiritually from our heart so that we can see that path forward, see how to yeah. explore and draw our ways forward. So, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't use should, I wouldn't say any shoulds, but I would Good say, point. and again, that I, what I offer are examples, not instructions that <clears throat> I think whenever we're struggling, whether it's with pain, fear, anxiety, despair, loss, grief, whenever we're struggling and we will struggle because we're human, then the challenges for me are how do I return to being wholehearted? How do I return to being fully present? How do I lean into life when pain and anxiety and fear push me away? And so the first thing is uh, to hold nothing back and to give my full attention to whatever is before me as a way to reconnect to the resources that are greater than me. And this is the heart because we really need these things when we, you know, when life pushes me away, that's when I need to lean in. When I close, that's when I need, we can, I can practice opening in my daily life, but when I really need it is when I'm closed. That's when I need to be open. And so these are the things that take quiet courage every day. How do we do, how do I do that? Um, and, and, you know, no matter what we've been through, we're never exempt. We're never exempt. You know, because I've almost died and I'm still here, I still experience fear. I still experience yeah. anxiety. I still, you know, but but if anything, over time, it gets right-sized. These difficult things are to be experienced, not obeyed. 
Fear is to be moved through, not obeyed as a value or a life view or something to honor like a negative God. And that's one of the things that staying in the authority of our being can help right size. So in very practical terms, you know, whenever I'm struggling, I give my attention to whatever is before me. Right now I'm looking out my study window and there's light on the tree, a big oak tree. And and just staying with that until I can start to be grounded, not avoid or displace hmm. or reframe or rationalize what I'm going through, but to ground it in a larger context. So, and I have a story that can, that can yeah. help illustrate yeah, yeah. that. Um, so regarding pain, this is an old ancient Hindu teaching story. Anonymous. I love these anonymous stories. So there's a master and apprentice. There's always a master and apprentice. And the master has this apprentice is very annoying because he constantly complains about life. So the master says, I want to the apprentice, bring me a handful of salt and put it in a glass of water and bring it to me quietly. So the apprentice does it and the master says, drink the glass of water. He drinks and he spits it out. And the master says, what's the matter? And the apprentice says, it's bitter. The master says, I want you to take the exact same handful of salt and follow me quietly. And he follows the master who leads him to a lake. The master says, put the salt in the lake. He does. And he says, now drink. So he, the apprentice kneels down. He scoops up the water. It dribbles from his chin. The master says, well, he says, oh, it's fresh. And the master looks at the apprentice. He says, stop being a glass, become a lake. Wow. <laughs> stop being a glass, become a lake. Now, that's an ancient anonymous story, and that's so helpful to us. It also tells us that throughout time, people have always had this wisdom. And we it's our challenge, each of us in our incarnation, to inhabit it. And the wisdom is everybody gets their handful of salt. We may get it all at once, or we may get it a grain at a time, but nobody gets out of here without their handful of salt, the abrasion of living. And pain, a certain amount of pain, is the friction of the wheel of life. Mm. We can't avoid it. If we, So the only thing we can do when feeling in pain is to enlarge our sense of things. It will not remove the pain but it can right-size it. And if we stay small, not only will we feel the pain, but it'll make us bitter. So you can hear that story and say, well, I'll never be a glass again. Oh, we will, because we're human. That's not the point. Now we're back to the course correction. It's to recognize the work of self-awareness is to say, oh, I'm being a glass right now. And we will, because the way that pain says hello is to make us tighten. That's the way pain and fear say hello. They make us constrict. And now our job is to enlarge our sense of things. How do we do that? I can't tell you how. Do I talk to a dear friend? Do I sit still? Do I listen to music that opens my heart? Do I go back to a favorite book that always reminds me what it means to be alive? Do you know what do I, there's a thousand, well, what do I do to enlarge my sense of things? And in this way, we start to populate our personal spiritual practice Yeah, that, that we can start to inhabit. You know, another thing that I always, for myself, is no matter what complication I'm experiencing or confusion or entanglement, I try to go to this basic question and ask, is what's before me heartening or disheartening? If it's heartening, I need to lean into it. If it's disheartening, why am I bothering? Hmm. Why, why am I there? It's as simple as that. What's heartening? What's disheartening? And to follow what's heartening. The word trust literally means to follow your heart. Interesting. I bet you've looked back at the source of the word to know that trust really does. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. Um, the, I'm, I don't usually take notes or yeah. I intend to, and then I end up realizing yeah. I haven't. And I'm, yeah. I've filled uh, three pages now oh. in, in very small text, but this is amazing. Yeah. It's, it's, 
such beautiful insight um, for me to ponder for myself. And that's, I mean, back to your, you know, to your original point is because I I have to discover what this means in my view, in my context, what tools I might lean towards to open my heart back up, to stop being a glass, uh, to to draw me back out. It's, it's not, it's, you could name 50 of them and you may happen upon the ones that work for me, but you may not. It's for me to figure it out. And so this is for anyone who's listening, who's struggling. Yes. It's like, we will encounter pain and fear you might be right now as you're listening and that will cause us by its very nature to constrict our job is not to try to deny or eliminate fear and pain but how do we right size it by opening up so then if that speaks to you if that seems helpful then it's your inner work to start to populate specifically how do i open up when i'm closed How do I, you know, I'll give you an example, personal example. About 10 years ago, I had probably the most scary health experience since my cancer journey. And it it came out of damage that was done to me with the chemo. Out of chemo, I had uh, neuropathy, which is all the extremities of the nerves are damaged. And um, so I had a very, I was in my late 50s, and I had a very serious stomach flu was going around, which I caught. And most people, when you have a stomach flu, it grips you, it affects everything, and then after 48 hours, it things repair. Well, because of the neuropathy, I, I, I didn't repair. So I, my stomach was basically like a backed-up sink. And of course, until you have something, you, you know, there's a term for this. So then I learned it's called gastropoesis, which means... Your stomach's backed up, uh, and and it's a very terrible condition, and they don't know whether you, it'll heal itself or you. There are people who live with this chronically, yeah. so this is another lesson in compassion. I was so I went for seven months, and I was lucky and blessed that it healed itself. But it took seven months, and I got very thin, and because I couldn't eat very much. And the, one of the things is that when you eat under this condition, you don't know whether two bites or four bites is going to give you a pain in your stomach, yeah. a sudden pain. So you, you can become afraid of eating. So the story is, is this time of year, we have bird feeders, which my wife has beautifully built. And we have here in Michigan two days a year when Baltimore Orioles come. And all of a sudden, there they were. And I didn't want, and so I was running to the window to see the Baltimore Orioles when I got one of those pains. And there you have it. Whether it's in normal life or in life-threatening conditions, we are always challenged. I was, what to do, how to let beauty in while we're suffering. Yeah. And I couldn't deny the pain. It would only make it worse. But I didn't want to miss those Orioles, not just because they were beautiful, but because they were part of the medicine. And so we are always challenged how to open up when we're hurting and let everything that's not hurting in. It's just it's got me thinking of all these situations where, yeah, there there's a pain and there's there's something uh, that drives fear or concern or whatnot, and you you need to push through anyway. Because pushing through is part of the ultimate getting through the whole thing. But it's it's very hard in those moments. And everyone in life experiences something like that. And sometimes we do push through and sometimes we don't. And it's it's important to look back on that and understand, well, why didn't I in that case? Could I have what would have been helpful to me? And and also without judgment. Yeah. Not to blame ourselves, but always to course correct. Yeah. Because to have self-compassion. And let me just say a word about fear that, you know, when I when I was first in my in that journey in the hospital, I was terrified and I'd never been through anything really difficult. So I was afraid of everything. I mean, I was one of those people who said, ouch, before they touched me, you know, and um, and not through any wisdom, but through experiential teaching, I was responding to every experience, whether I got blood drawn, whether I had a, uh, an angiogram, whether I was in really deep pain, whatever it might be, I experienced everything on a scale of one to 10 is 12. And I exhausted my heart. So I was forced yeah. 
to make discernments. I had to make discernments that said, you know, I don't like this. I don't want it. But everything can't be a 12 on a scale of 1 to 10. Yeah. I have to say, okay, the nurse is moving me after surgery. It's uncomfortable. I don't like it. But is so maybe what is this? A 5? I have to because you know Hippocrates said pleasure is the absence of pain. And so even in chronic pain, which you know I've been, I've had periods of chronic pain, but not like living an entire life with chronic pain. I don't know how I, my heart goes out to people. And uh, what I want to offer is that even in periods of extended pain, we have to find the brief moments where it stops or it pauses or it dips so that we can start to discern and build on those moments. Yeah. And, and, uh, appreciate them, even if it's only a moment. Yeah. That brief respite. Um, I imagine this three spiritual journeys that you're doing these, these courses, oh, these seminars, yeah. I imagine that there's, this is something people can delve into much deeper and start to explore for yeah. themselves. Is that, is that a fair statement? Yeah. So ne next year, starting next March, they're all available now for people to consider and look on my website. There's a link and a video that has all the details, but you know, it's really into the work of authenticity and into developing your own gifts and wisdom and your own spiritual practice. And so I'm off, I'll be offering three kind of formats. One is a year long. They're all from no more than 30 people, so mm -hmm. that it's a small group. And um, one is a year long where the same group meets four weekends over a year. And I designed that journey. Another is a deep dive where a group of 30 come together for a six-day extended period. And the other is kind of a threshold uh, journey welcoming into this kind of work, which is a weekend. And so they're all next start in March and they're throughout next year in 2020. Um, and I know it takes time for people to decide if they can do these things and make arrangements. So I try to get it all set up early so people can have time to, if it really fits for them. And they're all in person. They're all in person, yeah. right? No online. Yeah. No, these are in person. They're here in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Uh, again, if you get the deets in addition to all my other travel, this is where I live. So, um, uh, yeah, people can look on there and see all the details and where it is and the actual times and what it costs and all of that. That's great. And uh, obviously, I'll link to all that. And you have another book coming out, Drinking from the River of Light. Yes, yeah. that's just it's just coming out. I just saw the first copy the other day. That's so exciting. The update is September third. It's always exciting, yeah. and and this this is also this ties into what we're talking about because the center of this book is looking at the deeper creative process that all people experience, and it's based on the notion not of producing great work, but on how this process of expression helps us get strong and stay alive and healthy. And so the, the key metaphor is like you and I, we've been talking this whole hour and we're breathing. Like we couldn't decide, well, I'm only going to inhale for this hour. And it's not going to work. Yeah. And so the way the heart breathes, our inhalation of heart is by we perceive and feel. And we have to have the heart exhale. And that's where we have to develop a personal form of expression which could be in the arts, but I would make it even larger and say that that includes, you know, whether you're a gardener, you could be an auto mechanic, you could love to take car engines apart, you could be making dinner parties for dear loved ones or be a stamp collector or a birder. It doesn't, but everyone needs a personal form of expression so the heart can exhale. And by that, we get closer to life and stay healthy. And so it's more about what that process does to us than what products we create through it. If we devote ourselves and are thorough, we probably will do good work. But that, but you know, we've been trained the other way, the manufacturing model. Yeah. We're gonna, even with art, we're gonna create great art, we're gonna create a lot of it, we're gonna produce it. No. It's what that creative process does to us to keep us whole and healthy and alive. And that's what the, the new book is all about. No, oh, it's great. I was very thankful to get to read it the first, I think the first 
chapter or two. I forget now. Um, it was good. It was very oh, good. Thank you. Yeah, it's thank you. You're, you're as I, I said earlier, your writing is very different from what people may experience if they haven't seen something like this before. And it, I think exactly what you've been sharing with us, it's very evident that this is alive and well in how you write. So it just, it, it leaves you with a different feeling on the other side of it. It's beautiful stuff. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, Mark, your, your website, that's the best way for people to get a hold of you, marknepo.com. Uh, yes, marknepo.com, and there's a sister website, threeintentions.com, all spelled out. And either one of those will get you to all my work and where I'm teaching and speaking and, and things. Excellent. Um, are you ready to help me close this out? Sure. Yeah. I'm very, I'm curious now for the, uh, the way you're going to make this your own. You, you gave me uh, <laughs> some excitement at the beginning. Uh, today is a new day. And so I invite everyone to be as present in your heart as possible so you can remove whatever's between your heart and the world. That is very beautiful. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. Mark, thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's a joy, really. See what I was saying in the intro about beauty, about peace, about inspiration, about that curiosity. I was going to say that curious journey. The journey's curious, but it's more the curiosity that he puts into all of us with the questions that we can pose for ourselves. And I fully agree with him. It's our own journey. We are the ones who need to go through that. Uh, Just absolutely beautiful life as this inquisitive crooked journey Um, really really cool concept and if we're present in our heart we can connect to the world you need to look into what mark does he has i think 12 nonfiction and fiction books eight poetry books he's got all these other projects poetry um he has these video video series interviews uh it's all on his website mark nepo M-A-R-K-N-E-P-O dot com. And if you're interested in that, uh, that retreat, that program he mentioned, and you want to go to Kalamazoo, Michigan, which is a really nice place, you can go to threeintentions.com. And it's the word three. So T-H-R-E-E intentions.com. And spelling out the word reminds me of, how's this for a, a segue? The 50-75-100 solution, the website for that is also live and that is all numbers so 50751000.com 5075100.com here's a secret though i actually also set it up with the words if you want to spell out 5075100.com i just thought that was too much to type so that's why i go with the numbers Uh, mark's got it easy there's only one but i got a lot of numbers in there they take a while to type out in that site, yes, you can pre-order the book, which is a huge thing right now because I have made it available for just 99 cents before the launch date of November 19th, 2019. I don't know when you're listening to this. Maybe it's after that date. But if you get it before the launch date, if you pre-order it, especially on uh, the Amazon Kindle, you can get it for just 99 cents. And the reason for that is really simple. I want this book in as many hands as possible because I think it's something we all need. We all have relationships, and within those relationships, there are a set of them that are difficult, tough, dysfunctional. And then there's also a set that maybe we wouldn't categorize that way, but could be better still. So this means we all have spaces in our lives where those relationships could be more supportive, productive, loving, you know, whatever a form of better is in that context, we need that. And so I think everybody needs the book. So I wanted to make it as accessible as possible right off the bat for as many people as can be. So yes, you can get it in lots of other formats, paperback, assigned paperback. I've got a stack of copies in my house right now ready to go for anyone who buys them that wants them signed. Um, it's on the Nook, the Kobo Apple Books um, used to be called iBooks. If you don't know what Apple Books is, it's on Google Play in their book section. Uh, It's on Audible. It's everywhere. But for the Kindle specifically, I've lowered the price to 99 cents for the launch. So 
if that's a format you're interested in, and by the way, you don't have to have a Kindle. If you have a mobile device or a computer, you can also read content on the Kindle app that Amazon has on Windows and Mac and iOS and Android. And um, I don't know if they have it on anything else, but that's a lot of formats. That's a lot of platforms. Um, you can get it for just 99 cents. And actually, if you buy the print book from Amazon, you could get the Kindle for free. So just a bit of flexibility. I did the same thing with Do A Day. I always think that's a cool way to go so that no matter where you are, if you're reading it and you left off somewhere and you don't have access to it, you can grab it on the Kindle if you bought the paperback from Amazon at least. Um, but it's there on pre-order. I would love people to grab a copy at that great price. I will be raising the price after the launch. Maybe the same day of the launch, maybe a day or two later. I haven't decided yet. We'll see how things go. But at least for the pre-order, you can definitely get it for 99 cents on the Kindle. So head over to 5075100.com. There's a little green button a couple places on the page that says get the book. If you click there, you'll see all the formats you can pre-order it on. And if you go to the Kindle, you can get it for 99 cents. How's that? All right. I'm going to be quiet. I want to let Mark's words resonate with you. Make sure you go to marknepo.com. Share this episode with people you care about that maybe could use that curious, crooked journey for themselves to connect better to their heart and to the world, being present. Uh, and share the show. Subscribe, share it, give a review. It means the world to me. All right, everyone. Today is a new day. Go out and do it. Thanks so much.